in our Bibles to the book of Mark chapter 13. All right, little uh, recap here. Jesus has left the temple. He's not returning. He has prophesied that it is coming down, the, the, or the temple is coming down. And, and it's just now, really, the disciples are catching on to this. Because they're leaving and they're talking about, wow, look at these beautiful stones and this beautiful temple complex. And Jesus said, well, it's all coming down. And they're just like, whoa. They had some questions, right? Their questions were two things. We talked about these last week. When will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign, the sign, all is accomplished? Okay? And so we said, look, if you read verses 1 through 4, it's very important because this is a very difficult text for a lot of people, especially Westerners. And we read into all of this, but he talks about, you know, these stones are coming down, and then they come and they say, well, when are these things going to happen? And, he, and he's, he's talking about the temple is being destroyed. So that helps us, you know, as we, we move on. So, but in their minds... A lot of people's mind is that when this day comes, you know, all, all these, you know, Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed, then that means something, something new and greater is going to happen. And that's what they wanted to know about the sign. They're thinking in terms of, of this coming of new creation and new life uh, and justice and peace that God had promised would one day prevail over the earth. And they're, they're wanting to know, well, if that's going to happen, when is this other thing? So they had two questions. So he continues to answer these questions. And that's important because we are to the really fun part of the Gospel of Mark 13. Okay? So somebody read for us. I want you to pay attention to it. Verses 24 through 27. Okay. What does it sound like he's talking about? I mean, seriously, does, is there anything about this that you go, no, I don't, I don't think that's not going to talk about the second coming of Christ. And this is where people really get off on this, and this is why we have to follow the pattern that Mark has already set before us. And he's talked about, uh, in here, he starts off, he says, in those days after that tribulation. So he's talked about these things, we talked about that in verses 1 through 4. When he says these things, what is he talking about? Huh? Come on. What's it? Destruction of the temple. Yes. Ah, got this thing off. All right, so destruction of temple, right? Sorry for my spelling. I'm just going to try to keep you on track with what he's talking about when he says these things. So in my Bible... The way I do this is every time I see these things, I put a little, uh, I underline it, and, and I go back to the verse, verse 2, where he says, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be any left here on the stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So when I see these things in verse 4, which is mentioned a couple of times, and then on in verse 8, I draw a line, underline it, and I just draw a line to verse 2, because it's letting me know when I see these things, I'm talking about the destruction of the temple. But here he uses a different phrase, doesn't he? And he says, in those days. And this is linked to the second part of what we talked about last week, which is what? 
Yeah, the abomination of desolation. Whatever that was, the readers would have known when it happened. They didn't know exactly what it was going to be, but when it happened, they're like, this is it. This is, we know this is it. So, so I, I put a little box around the abomination of desolation in verse 14. And then in verse 17, he talks about those days. I, I underline it, draw a line to it. And then in verse 19, he says, for in those days, he's still talking about the abomination. I draw a line to it. So when I come to verse 24, what does he say? But in those days, I underline that, I draw a line to it. Because he's still talking about this abomination of desolation. But he also says, after that tribulation. So now, if you look back at verse 19, he says, For in those days there will be such tribulation. So he says, in those days after this tribulation. So after the abomination of desolation. So what are we back to? The destruction of the temple, right? Because this was all about the abomination of desolation. Something was going to happen, and, and that's get out of Jerusalem. Get out, flee to the mountains. Because it's coming. So now he's telling us something that's going to happen that has to do with the destruction of the temple. When we read it for what it says in verses 24 through 29, we look at that and we say, this has got to be the second coming. But he's already let us know with a pattern. It's not. It's not. In fact, we're going to read this um, like a first century Christian. Uh, that was steeped into the Old Testament Jewish prophecies, poetic prophecies. And that's, that's very key, because what we find here is this, this type of poetry. Do any, does anybody have any footnotes there in verses 24 through 27 that links you to an Old Testament passages? Okay, Jeremiah, anybody else have anything? Isaiah? Okay, you're probably going to see a lot of these because these, these are phrases used, okay? I've said this a thousand times. I'll say it again. If you want to understand the New Testament, what's happening here, don't let anybody get you off track and say that's not important because that's what keeps us on track with the New Testament. That helps us so that we don't have everybody saying, well, this verse means this and this and this and this. And there's some things that are difficult. We don't know for sure what the abomination of desolation is. But we know that it's something, but it's keeping us on track that we don't just go way off, okay? So we go back and we follow this trail, and, and, and we see um, in verses 24, um, 24 and 25, we have this, this uh, cosmos language, right? Um, what does it say? What's the cosmos language? What's that? Sun's going to be darkened, the moon, the stars. And when we see this type of poetry in the Old Testament, what it is talking about is changes in an existing world power. And it was, it was their way of saying the lights are going out on these powers. And we find this all over the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to give you an example. We're going to use one in here, and we're going to use another one later on in worship. The one we're going to look at here is Joel. 
okay? So you have the prophet Joel. He writes about Israel's rebellion and coming destruction. Does that sound anything familiar to what we're talking about here in Mark 13? Their judgment and their destruction, right? And so there in chapter 2 of Joel, he begins and he describes this imminent disaster for Jerusalem. Okay? And, and, and he, so this is the way he describes it in chapter 2, verse 10. The earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw from shining. Okay, that look anything familiar? Yeah. So this is the, the chaotic and cosmic upheaval that he describes here of the day of the Lord. Invading armies, if you go on and read Joel chapter 2, these invading armies are depicted as locusts. It's poetic language. Do we think locusts is actually what's going out and fighting them? No, it, this is referring to the swarming army of Yahweh is, is what it's talked about. Now, what they end up doing is they cry out to God and they repent. God has mercy on them. Don't let anyone tell you that the Old Testament is not filled with mercy and grace. It's everywhere. In fact, it starts with creation, and it just keeps going, okay? Uh, and so God, God has mercy on them, and so uh, God has pity, and he says he's going to bring his divine presence. This divine presence is going to eventually come on his people. He will pour out his spirit of all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. Now let me ask you something. Do we find that anywhere else in the Bible? Acts 2. Yes, it's quoted. And there's where its greatest fulfillment as the spirit of God comes. After Jesus, is, after Jesus has... Uh, risen and he is exalted to the right hand of God he sends his spirit right this is this and and he says okay so Jesus is saying one day God's presence is not only going to fill the temple but what else or who else people people what's being destroyed what is considered the presence of God and here we see, don't worry about that, because the very presence of God is going to fill people one day. And, and we're going to talk about how all of this flows in a minute. Latter part of Joel 2, here it is again, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. All right, you see, we get to these things and we go nuts, but it's like, wait a second, this stuff's found everywhere. It's found in Isaiah, it's found in Jeremiah, it's found in other places. You've got, some of you've got links to these other places, and they're not all the same, but, but they all are speaking in this language, that there's some kind of power, earth power, nation of whatever it may be, and the lights are going out, okay? So... Cosmic language is symbolic of political changes within world history. It is not the end of the world. But what's happening is earth-shattering. Okay? 
It's earth-shattering. So the destruction of the temple is catastrophic. It's catastrophic. Let me ask you this. That happened in AD 70. Where is the temple now? Did they ever rebuild it? No. They're not allowed to. They can't. Uh, don't think that God doesn't have something to do with that. So it, it, what he's showing here is that with the destruction of the temple, something new and better is rising up. So this thing, which was looked at as evil, the lights are going out, but something good and better is rising up. And that's what's happening. And he goes on and he, he, he shares with us. Verses 26 and 27, who is he talking about? Come on. Well, son of man, that's, that's what I'm really looking for. Son of man, does that sound familiar? Son of man, have we talked about the son of man? Have we talked about the son of man in Mark? Yes. Okay, so where does this come from? It, it comes from the Old Testament, but it comes from Daniel. Okay? It's this vision Daniel had. And you notice, there came one like the Son of Man. Fourteen times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Okay? So... Daniel has this wild vision. Do you remember this? He has this wild vision. And there are these mutant beasts. He describes these, these four mutant beasts. But we, we later find out that, that while he's in this poetic language, he's talking about these awful, terrible beasts, that they're actually kings and kingdoms that he's referring to. Okay? So here... This is Daniel's vision about the enthronement of the Son of Man. It began with the Ancient of Days. This is Yahweh. He is seated on his throne. And uh, in fact, in verse 9, here he comes. He's seated on his throne. But we notice something here. What is it? It's plural. It's plural. There are thrones. So there, there's the throne that, Jesus, that, that the Father sits on, Yahweh, and he says, but there's still an unoccupied throne. And this language that he's showing is the cosmic mountain of God. Daniel is given this vision as he's like he's looking into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, which is interesting because it's gone. <laughs> it's destroyed at this point in Daniel. But he's giving him this vision, and he's seeing where God sits. It's on the mercy seat. This is, this is, where, this is where God is. Right? This is how they this is how all of this is supposed to uh, to take place. So now in verse 13, tell me if this language sounds familiar at all to what we just read in Mark. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he is presented before him. So the Son of Man. He is described, um, he is man, which is the intent of showing he is man, son of man. But he also rides on the clouds. Who rides on the clouds? It's God. 
Folks, every time we find in Scripture and you read it in the Old Testament, look up people who ride on the clouds. It's always God. The one that is coming is this, this one is both God and man. Anyone want to guess who the Son of Man is? Yeah, this is Jesus, right? So he, he's speaking in this language. And we notice something else about the Ancient of Days. Ancient of Days gives him dominion. He gives him glory and a kingdom, right? All people, nations, languages should serve him as dominion, as an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So it is Jesus who occupies the other throne. He occupies the throne as the rider on the clouds when he is given the kingdom of God. And, and what's happening here is a new king is emerging and it's replacing these, these other kingdoms, as Daniel describes, these mutant creatures who have been trampling upon all the other nations of the earth and up is rising an eternal kingdom. Okay? So keep that in mind. All these failed governments... And, and it's going to really become clearer when we get into chapter 14. Look at that. Look at that. Oh, I can't wait till we get to that. So by the time the temple is destroyed, what's going to happen? What will have happened? The kingdom of God will have come to the nations. And how do we know that? Pentecost, but I'm thinking Mark 13. Look, somebody read verses 9 and 10. It must first be preached. First before what? Was that? First before what happens? Was that? Jesus coming. Come on. Yeah. Before the destruction of the temple. This is what this is talking about. Before that happens, he says, first, this is going to happen, right? And did it happen before the destruction of, the, of Jerusalem? Come on, we talked about this last week. How? How did it happen? Yeah, the missionary journeys. Read the gospel of Acts. I mean, read Acts. Acts tells us, it gives us the history of it going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to what? The uttermost parts of the world. And that happened before A.D. 70. Paul finished his third one in 57 A.D. And he's still going to Jerusalem. I mean, he's still going to Rome. And there's already, there's already believers in Rome. Folks, this is all over the known world. By the time that the temple is destroyed. And that's important because the Son of Man supersedes the Jerusalem temple. This is what he's trying to show us. Now look at verse 27 again. With the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds, that's the enthronement, what does he send out all over the earth? Angels. All right, now that's a little confusing. It's, it's a Greek word, angelos, and the word means one who brings a message. It's a messenger. It's one who is sent by God to send a message. Do what? 
There you go, angels. Angels, angel, angelos. Now, here's what some people don't realize. Okay, because we read this and we're like, well, look, it's saying the angels are going out. Because when we think of an angel, what do we think of? What? Hold on, Lonnie. What? What do you think of? Angels. Yeah, winged creature, you think of this divine being, right? But here's what people don't realize. This word angelos is used not only of the divine beings, but also human beings. Let me show you. Uh, this is starting off Mark. He's talking about John the baptizer. Behold, I send my angelos. Same word. Exact same word before your face. He also sends his angeloses, his messengers, to, to Jesus. Okay? And then in Luke, uh, it says that uh, Jesus, he sent messengers, same word, ahead of him in a village, in a Sumerian village to get things prepared. Second Corinthians, we learn about Titus and those who have come, and, and they're sharing the gospel in that area. And they are looked at, they are angeloses of the churches. They're messengers. So when we come across this word, angels, or angelos, then what we have to ask is, is this a divine being, or is this a human being? Now, the translators of the English Standard Version, and probably most of yours, they just went ahead and put angels, which is still not a still right translation. But what do you think? Do you think he's talking about here that he sent out his angels to collect the elect of the earth? Or do you think he's talking about divine messengers, or do you think he's talking about human messengers? I think he's talking about human messengers. I think this, this goes with the message. I mean, what happened? We just mentioned it. Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. And, and they're going out. And the elect are simply those who, who are responding to God's gospel, his good news. Without that, there could be absolutely no change. So there is, there is now this change in government. It goes from the temple and all that it represented to Christ. Uh, that the kingdom of God is embodied in Christ. So Jesus is the new, the greater temple that emerges out of the ashes. This is, you remember what Jesus says? And we're going to see this later. He says, I will destroy the temple and what? I'm going to rebuild it in three days. Hmm, wonder what he meant by that. Now, we also notice there he says um, he embraces all the nations of the four winds. But don't let that scare you. It just simply represents the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west. It's Old Testament poetry as well. Shocked by that? Shouldn't be shocked by that at all. All right, so let's keep going. Any questions about that before we move on? All right. And we'll come back to it in worship. We're going to hit on it a little bit more. I can't tell the story of Daniel 7 enough. I love that story. Uh, so let's keep going. Somebody read for us Mark 13, verses 28 through 31. All right. The fig tree. Have we talked about fig trees in here? Yeah. Back in chapter 11, when Jesus first came to the temple and he... He turns over the tables. Actually, it's the second day he comes to the temple. But he, he's turning over the tables and the money changers and all this kind of stuff. And then he's, he's, he first, before he comes in, you know, he curses this fig tree. Why did he curse it? 
no fruit, right? And then at the end of this whole temple thing going on, he comes out, and what happened to the fig tree? It's withered, okay? And all of that connects in together because it's showing that the temple is barren. The temple does not produce fruit. It must be destroyed. It must be, you know, where it will, it will never, um, and so forth. But here, that's not what's happening, is it? Is this a tree that's barren? No. Now, let me give you just a little bit here about uh, these, these fig trees in Palestine. Leaves begin to grow um, in March and April. The figs, what we call the first harvest of ripe figs, happens in May and June. Okay? May or June. Right in that, that time. So here he's talking about these things, talking about the destruction of the temple and everything else. What do you think he's trying to tell us about the leaves and the figs? There's going to be an abomination of desolation, right? What do they do when this abomination of desolation happens? Leave, because this is right on his tail. So here he's saying, look, um, when you see the leaves, the abomination of desolate, get out before the figs arrive. Okay? So th this is the kind of language uh, that he's using here. But I want us to see verse 30, 31. I think it's very powerful because it's showing forth um, this permanent authority of Jesus' words. And it gives credence to what he just said in verse 30. Because the first part of verse 30, what does it say? What does Jesus say? Truly I say to you. In other words, what I'm about to tell you, you can take it to the bank, right? And what we find here is a hyperlink, shocker, to Isaiah chapter 40. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, what? It stands forever. And he's showing here that the word of Christ is equal to that of the words of Scripture. It's the word of God. Because what he speaks is God, right? And, and so the word of Jesus is no less than the word of God. And people get confused by this. And this is important because people get confused by the phrase, heaven and earth will pass away. Right? So when we come to Mark 13, people are like, well, it says here, look, I'm telling you, this is about the second coming of Christ and everything because it says heaven and earth will pass away. Notice he says heaven and earth will pass away, but right? The grass withers, the flower fades, but it's a comparison. There's a comparison that's happening. And, and, the pro, and these poets, they, they love to use these comparisons. So if you're going to show something that's permanent, what would be the good comparison to that? The opposite. Something that's not. Look at Isaiah 51. The heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. They who dwell in it will die in like manner. All those things are just temporary stuff. But, there it is again. But what? My salvation, what is it? It's forever. My righteousness will never be dismayed. It's a comparison. Luke kind of does this um, as well. He says, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So what he's saying here of Jesus' words, he is putting it in the same respect as Torah. 
that is in authority and permanence. That's, that's what he's doing here with the words of Jesus. So Jesus' words, how important are they? They're God's words. They're God's words. All right. Somebody read for us verses 32 through 36. Okay. We have a new phrase. What's the phrase there in verse 20, I mean, verse 32? But in that day, right? That day. Now, here's the question. What is that day? And that is that <laughs> a whole lot of debate that goes on with scholars that are a whole lot smarter than I am. Um, and I think there, there are two that are the most prevalent and probably the one that's most popular um, is believing that that day is referring to the second coming of Christ. Okay? And, and I think if there's any place in this text where it's talking about Christ's second coming, I think this is it. And, and these are some of the arguments, is he says, but concerning that day, right? Um, it's a certain Greek phrase that's used. And, and when Paul uses it in Corinthians, and others use this as well, when you see that phrase, it means there's a change of subject. You see, Paul is changing from the subject of one thing to the next. For example, he'd been talking about... Um, sexual immorality, and so forth. And then he says in verse 7, verse 1, he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And then he, he changes from it in verse 25 to those who are married. Now concerning the betrothed. And he's answering these questions. And he does it again in, ch in chapter 8. He says, Now concerning food. He, he changes again to answer their questions about this. Um, and Mark has done this in the chapter before. You just may not realize it. And, and it's here in Mark 12, 26. This is when Peyton taught and preached. And he, he first was talking about, uh, he says, you know, he's first talking about those who are married in the resurrection. Remember that? That whole thing, they were asking a question about that. And then he says, and as for, in other words, he's he just suddenly changes to the topic of resurrection overall. So he's using it as a topic change. Uh, Mark's, I mean, Matthew's rendition of our text in Mark says of these questions is, tell us when these things be, okay, these things just like we do, when's the destruction of the temple? And then he says, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Uh, what it says here is, when is, what's the sign of all is accomplished? And I think it probably has that same thing involved. And so people look at that and say, he's now answering the second question. He's talking about when is Jesus coming. Now I'm going to save that for our worship. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to look at the second one. And that is, that day is still talking about the destruction of the temple. And the reason I say that, I don't know if I put it here or not. No, I didn't. Uh, let me back up just a couple of slides. Uh, okay, so that day, you see the Greek? Look at those days. In the Greek, it's the same words. And, and English Standard Version has that day, most other translations. Anybody else have a different translation? What does it say? Um, verse 30, 32. That day. 
case, most are going to say that day, okay? Uh, so so the, the question is, you know, is that what's being talked about here? We'll come back to this in just a second. Um, the people had asked for signs, and what had Jesus said about signs? So far, everything we've been talking about, what, what did he say last week? They're, de they're deceptive. They're deceptive. People use these things that, you know, you can call out, okay, this will be a sign, and people will use it for all kinds of things, right? And he says they're deceptive, and so it's very possible Jesus is not going to give them some kind of sign. In fact, we're going to, you see there, he says, I don't know the day or the hour. Now, he did talk about this generation, and, that, and that's important, and I don't think I even mentioned it. Uh, back in verse 30, where he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Does anybody know what a generation is in the Bible? 40 years. Yeah, very good. It's 40 years. Well, does anyone want to guess how long it's going to take from the time Jesus says this to the time of the destruction of the temple? Yeah, it's, I think it's about 37 years. About 37 years. So he's saying this generation, and he's not saying it's going to be in 40 years. He's saying within this 40-year time limit. Okay? But now he's coming back and he says, look, I don't know the day. I don't know the specific time. And then we find this similar language that I think may link everything together. Verse 33, he says, be on guard. That's what he, we just read there. He says, be on guard for this. It's the same word he used in verse 5, it's the same word he used in verse 9. All of this talking about the destruction of the temple. And then in verse 23, when he's talking about the abomination of desolation, he says, be on guard. Now, <clears throat> here's a question for you. Is it, does it seem odd to you that Jesus says, I don't know when this time is going to be? The rider on the clouds, the one who will be exalted to the right hand of God. We know he is God. Does it, do, how, does, how does anybody take that? Seems a little strange, doesn't it? Seems a little strange. And I think the only way we can really look at this is not to say Jesus isn't God. I think the way we see this is that the Father, that is, that is in, in his power. It's, it's on his timetable that these things are going to happen. What they're told to do is what, though? Yes, stay, stay on guard, keep awake, watch. Terrifying times are ahead. And he uses this kind of a, a little mini parable or story, whatever you want to call it, of the doorkeeper, right? So here's this guy. He's a doorkeeper of, of a master's house. And, and he says, look, you don't know when the master's going to be coming, so what does that mean for you as a doorkeeper? You need to be alert right? And, and if you notice the phrases that he uses here of, of when they need to make sure they're alert, it has to do with the Roman time of the first, second, third, and fourth watch. Now, he doesn't use the three that the Jews use. Why would he use the four of the Romans? Who's he writing to? Gentiles. Gentiles, okay? So, but, but the point is simply this. You don't know when this is going to occur. But he's saying, when, what we're going with here, that when you see this abomination of desolation, when those days occur, he says, head to the mountains. 
Yes, run as fast as you can, right? Don't go back and get your coat. Just leave because it's, it's, it's going to be on you. So what do you think would be the point for today? Just looking at this, I mean, the destruction of Jerusalem has already come and gone. So what, what kind of lessons do you think we should get from all of this? Be ready, okay? Yeah, there is, there is that aspect that we need to be ready. For what? Yeah, yeah, there's going to be a judgment, right? And, and it's, it's described in a lot of terms as what we found here. Peter talked about, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Okay, how does the thief come? Does it give you warning? No. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done in it, it will be exposed and all of these kinds of things. So, and, and for some people, they read this, they're like, man, that's scary. Are we to be afraid? No. We're just simply to be watchful. We are to endure this earth. That's the scary part, is this earth. But the other part is not. In fact, he says, look, that's why you come together. That's why, that's why you shouldn't forsake the time that we have together because we, we should be encouraging each other as we're, as we're waiting for that day to come. And, you know, if you're a person who, you, you know, all you have is negative stuff and that's all you want to give to everybody else and you want to complain and gripe and everything else every time we come together, is, is that stirring other people up to love and good works? Does that make people want to say, no, I don't want to neglect our time together? Well, yeah, it would. We want to be the people who are encouraging each other as we're waiting for that day to finally come. And I love this verse, 1 John 2:28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. We're looking forward to that great and wonderful day. And the beautiful part of texts like this, even though we look at this and say, what does the destruction of Jerusalem have anything to do with us? has everything to do with us because Jesus is showing them how they need to respond in those times where the world is just hectic and chaotic and the nations of the earth just seem to be trampling everyone else. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you for your son. We thank you, Father, that he has come and, and that he was willing to die for our sins and that uh, he is raised at your right hand. And Father, we look forward to the day of his coming. And Father, may we come together as your people and we encourage each other as we bring our praise and glory to you for saving us from a world that hates us at times, that wants us gone, that maligns us. But we know that we endure, Father, because we believe in your words. We believe in the words of your Son. And we believe that you're coming again. In Christ's name we pray, amen.